Join me, please, in reading a selection from Psalm 40, reading together. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. O Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. I have tried, tried to recite all your wonderful deeds. I would never come to the end of them. Now, I have to <clears throat> have to acknowledge that uh, this title is not mine, but I saw it and I thought I've got to use that title. It's just too good not to use. Anyway, we're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning in one of the Messianic Psalms. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness to us, and thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of year when we are reminded of the cost of our salvation. And yes, we remember the fun and the, the joy, and yet we also remember the reason that you came. And so we're thankful, and we praise you and worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are 16 uh, Messianic Psalms, and um, a Messianic Psalm is a psalm that um, says something about Jesus the Messiah in the psalm, which is then picked up in the New Testament by someone and quoted and applied to Jesus. So that's kind of the rough way that we uh, figure out what a Messianic Psalm is. And so Psalm 40 is one of those Messianic Psalms, and uh, you'll see as we go through where it is that it's a taken out and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Um, each Christmas we remember that Jesus came as a babe, and we remember the manger, and we remember all of the wonder and the joy of that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, we tend to focus on the birth and that kind of thing, but we also, even in some of the songs today, we remember that there is a purpose in the birth. He came in order to die. That was the whole point. He came to be born, to live a perfect life, and to, and to die as the perfect sacrifice. So again, we think through the things that, that, that cannot be separated. You can't separate the babe from, from the cross. You can't separate the cradle uh, from the cross. You can't separate Bethlehem from the incarnation. Because if you separate Bethlehem from the incarnation, or separate Bethlehem <clears throat> and the incarnation, then there is no no, no future in the sense that there's no Calvary. So Christ came, he was incarnate God, and he was born with a single purpose, and that purpose was to die. So as we go through uh, this Messianic Psalm, I guess I really wanted to just say it's a Messianic Psalm, but it isn't specifically about his birth. Uh, psalm 22, for instance, is a Messianic Psalm, but it's all about the cross. And so there are, there are others. So in, as we go along, you'll see where this, um, this comes together as we study the psalm. So um, let's go ahead and jump into verse 1. 
Uh, and one of the things that I'm going to do as we go along from time to time is I'm going to read the verse and say, now, when I read devotionally, many times I'll ask a question or I'll ask a thought or make a sentence. So I may throw some of those in as we're going along because I just found this psalm just really enjoyable. It starts out with, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. He turned to me and heard my cry. And my devotional thought was, do I really believe God hears me? Um, if I believe God hears me, do I cry out like I should? And so it was just kind of a thought. But, but David was waiting patiently on God to act, and, and God turned and he heard um, David's cry. Verse 2, then this is where you really get some interesting things here. We don't have any idea where this took place in David's life. Some people say it was early when he was being, escaping from Saul. Some people say it was when Absalom was after him. We don't know. But this is a really difficult time. Look at what it says. David says, he lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. And I asked myself, when's the last time I felt that God had saved me from something or rescued me? And, and, and immediately came to mind that a situation many years ago where I, there were some false accusations being made about me, and, and those are hard to deal with. And then God stepped in, and it was amazing how he showed the truth to be what it was, and it was all taken care of. Now, in this case, David is referring to, I, I think that this uh, it probably is a real event that he's talking about. And David is a warrior, was someone who would fight, and he had swords and spears and shields that he worked with. What would be the worst possible thing that could happen to a warrior? It would be to be in a pit that you couldn't get out of. And so as I'm thinking that through and, and thinking about this, thinking about the fact that you know, what David is saying is he, he brought me out of that place of certain death if the enemy found me. Not that he, not that he didn't just bring me out, but he set me down in a place where my feet were on solid ground, where I wouldn't slip. And then he stayed there to make sure I was steady so that I could go back into the battle. So he lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and out of the mire. He set my feet on the solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. Verse 3, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in God. And so the whole idea of even the, even the song was something that God gave them, gave him. Isn't that cool? He has given me a new song. And, and I love the fact that God is the one. He just saved him, rescued him, put him in a situation where he could do what he was supposed to do as a warrior. And then David says, yeah, and he's also given me a new song. I can praise God. I can take my words and put them in music and, and lift it up to God. He's given me a new song, praise to our God. And David said the best part of this is that many will see and hear and understand it, and they will put their trust in God. They've seen what God has done for me and how he's spared me, how he's brought me out of this horrendous situation, and he's given me this new song. And so people are going to see it, they're going to hear it, and they're going to respond. Verse 4, Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. 
devotional thought here for me was, is my confidence and trust in God? Or is there someone else I'm looking to to get me out of my problem or my difficulty? That's a good thing to kind of think through. But David says the joys of those who trust God, they're, they're blessed. There's a sense of, of being trusting and trusting God alone. There's a sense of wonder and awe that comes with all of that. Um, and he says, you know, I, <clears throat> many of those who trust in the Lord who have no confidence. So they're not putting their trust in someone else or, or even in someone who worships idols. He's saying they're trusting God alone. They're not going in those other directions where others might go. And then verse five, <clears throat> Oh Lord, you are my, my God. You have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all of the wonderful deeds, how I would never come to the end of them. And again, I'm going to throw in this devotional thought. What does it mean that God has no equal? And how should that impact my life? Just kind of a question that I thought as I was reading and studying this week. But David says, your plans for us are too numerous to list. God, you have done so many things for us that if we wanted to start listing them, we would not be able to. There's just too many. Um, he goes on to say, God, you have no equal. In other words, there's no one else like you. You are unique. You are one and only. That's who our God is. And then David says, if I tried to recite all the wonderful things that you've done, there'd be no end. I could not... I could not keep listing them. There's not enough ways to list them all. That's an implication here. And I just want to just draw a thought again. Remember, David as the warrior. Um, just go ahead and go to the next slide if you would, Keaton. Thank you. He brought me up. So here's, here's a, if you're breaking down the fact that he's in the pit, he's been trying to get out, he's covered with mud and slime, and, and every time he tries to get up, he slides down deeper in. And he says, he brought me up. He took me out of the pit. He got me out of there. And so he brought me up from the, a desolation pit, a pit of despair. Uh, no way out. Only a matter of time before he's found. Now, again, this could be very, very real. It could be that he's just referring to something that has happened in the past as well. But it's the wording here is so powerful. You brought me up from a desolate pit out of muddy clay, the couldn't do anything. I just kept sliding back in. I was stuck. So you brought me up from a desolate pit, from the mud and the clay, and you put my feet on a rock. There's no slipping and sliding anymore. This is solid, firm ground. And for a warrior, that would be a very important thing. You lose your feet in a battle with swords and spears, and you fall down, your days are numbered. And so David said, you put me on a rock and you made my steps secure. I'm safe. I'm with you. I have the security because of what you've done. And the answer to that then, David said, is that you took me out of this dangerous, awful situation and you put a brand new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. And, and there's speculation that maybe this psalm itself was that hymn that God gave David as a result of the situation that he's in. There's another implication, I think, here, though. Verse 5. Uh, o Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your deeds, never come to the end of it. So, in, in a sense, they're saying, if we wanted to say all of these things, we couldn't. 
We couldn't. Um, the New Testament says that if all of the, if, if all of the, <clears throat> they could write all of the books in the world, there wouldn't be enough room in all of the writing that we could possibly do to tell the things about Christ. Um, anyway, the, the list is an ongoing. Stop and think about this. So you've got God who in, in eternity past creates the universe, forms the world, puts everything into perfect working order. We've got trillions of stars. We've got galaxies we've not even found yet. All this stuff God put in place. And he said, let's make man in our image and let's put him on the earth. So in eternity past, that's what God decided to do and he did it. And so now you've got all of this stuff going on until the end, which we don't know when that's going to be. When Christ comes and industrializes in all of the things that are to come, eventually there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and God will make everything new again. That's down the road still. But from eternity to eternity, there's where we are right now in time, living out the things that are all around us. And, and on one level, I think that's what David is saying here. Um, you are, you have no equal. This is the kind of thing that you do, God. You create and you make. And, and, you, and you step into situations individually. Because you're sovereign, because you're all-present, because you can do anything, those situations that we find ourselves in, you step into them, and you help. And you bring us out of the mire and out of the clay. So do we, do we really believe when we say you have no equal? <clears throat> go ahead, Keaton, go to the next one. Thank you. Do we really believe that you have no equal? Do we really believe that none can compare with God? Do we really believe that? Do we comprehend that? Or do we just say the words? And one of the expressions that would, I think, or one of the examples that would help us to see a little bit of the heck that God has no equal is Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, some people think that, hey, I, I, I become a Christian, so no more bad stuff, right? No more pain, and, and God's going to work all these things out for good. And, and see, I'm gonna, this verse, this is it right here. God's going to make it all good for me. And that's kind of how some people interpret it. Not understanding, I think, sometimes that what God is going to say is good may not necessarily be what I think is good for me. Because I'm very selfish, and I want many times things God probably doesn't want to give me. And the problem is when we define the good that we want God to do for us. That's where the problem lies. When we try to put and inject ourselves into that. Uh, and this says very clearly, God causes everything to work for the good of those who love him. And, and it's not something that we can impact in the way that we're doing things. So <clears throat> again, I, I found this quote, I found it really kind of encouraging. God promises a safe landing, but not a calm passage. <laughs> so there are going to be storms and troubles and all kinds of things along the way, but God promises you will get there. You will get there. And you will be safe. That's the, that's the part that, that kind of we struggle with sometimes. So he doesn't promise that we'll not have difficulties or hardships. Uh, he's not going to promise that life will be stress-free, problem-free. But he has promised that he's working even through all of those situations and that he will be with us in those things that we're going through. Jesus in the upper room, when he's talking to his disciples, he's warning them about what was coming and how they would all 
scatter and leave, and leave him behind. John 16, 33, Jesus said this, I have told you these things, all the hard things I've mentioned to you, the fact that you're going to all scatter. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Isn't that awesome? You guys are going to have some issues. There's going to be, you know, you're going to wonder what happened and what hit you. Uh, you know, you still haven't understood that I have come for a purpose and that's to die. But when you get to the other side of all of this, remember that in me you have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So when we're facing difficult and hard things in this world, okay, Jesus warned us that would happen. But he promised to walk with us through those things. We never face these things alone. We are always facing them with the Lord. And he has said, I've overcome, I've overcome the world. I can help you make it through all of this. And so, he said, I've told you about the hard times and the troubling things, and, and, and when they do come, remember me. Remember, I'm with you. I'm with you every step of the way. As I was studying this week, I came across this, um, this I guess, a poem or statement about this passage, uh, these verses in Psalm 40. God, you are always adding to your miracles. Calming a storm is strange indeed, but after all, is, it is understandable in terms of natural events. The real miracle the Bible is concerned with is the area of redemption, that God should go down into the pit to rescue a sinner and then utterly transform his life to one of joy and compassion. It's a miracle because the sinner did not do this for himself. God did it. Isn't that awesome? And that's, that's just a reflection of this passage. Uh, you know, I was in this pit, deeper, and God brought me out and set me on solid ground. One of my favorite songs is a song that I find just full of hope, and I just want to read this uh, this part of it. There is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me into its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. Through present suffering, future fear, he whispers courage in my ear, for I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. After Christmas, we're going to sing this, I promise. <laughs> There's too many good songs to sing at this time of year, but that's one of those ones that I always sing. I get to that verse and I think, wow, that's really well put. So as we look at these first five verses, we realize that God has no equal. He is our hope and our strength, and we are safe in Him. Let's move on to, to verse 6 and, and following. <clears throat> You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Now, in the Hebrew, this is a, a difficult passage to translate, especially that little phrase in, in the New Living. It says, made me listen. Um, the New American Standard says, you've given me ears, or you have opened my ears, or you've dug out my ears, all those things. Are, and then the, another translation will say, uh, my ears you have pierced. 
So the two thoughts that seem to come out in, in this uh, verse from the Hebrew translation, or from the Hebrew Old Testament, is that you've opened up my ears or dug them out. And the whole idea there seems to be you've made me able to understand. You've given me the ability to hear and understand. The other one, that the, my ear you have pierced, and again, I say the translation sometimes will say it's either this or this. And if you see a little note, they'll tell you that. And this is the idea of a bondservant who had sold himself into slavery, and it comes to the end of time he can be set free, but he, he understands that he has got it better than he's ever had it in his life as a slave for his master who's so good and wonderful. And so at that point, he chooses to be a slave for the rest of his life, and that's where they take the ear, put it on the doorframe, and they pierce the ear. And sometimes it's translated as bondservant, but really what it means is a slave for life. He's chosen to serve this master for the rest of his life. So that's, that's one or the other. So either he made it, me able to listen or he gave me the opportunity to become his servant, his slave for life. So verse 6, he says, God doesn't delight in sacrifice. Now what, what do you mean God doesn't delight in sacrifice? He's the one who asked for them. Um, you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Well, the law says that he did. But it seems that what, what David is doing here, he's making a very strong statement so that people understand God doesn't just want the ritual. He doesn't just want that sacrifice. He wants the heart and the dedication and the focus of the heart. So when you come to offer your sacrifice, it's all about worshiping God. It's all about doing this because God has asked you to do it. And so <clears throat> that's, the, that's the whole idea that I think David's trying to capture as he states it that way. And then um, verse 7, <clears throat> Then I said, Look, I have come, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. And, and so, again, it's, it's possible that what, you know, remember, this is written by David about himself now, when we get to the second section here, the book of Hebrews comes along and says, yeah, it's about David, but also about the Savior. Okay, so that's where we get it. It's in these verses right here. Um, so he said, look, I've, I've come. David's maybe remembering the commitment that he'd made to the Lord. And then he says in, <clears throat> in verse 8, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. And, and one of those devotional questions came to mind. Do I really take joy? in doing God's will. I mean, I hope so, and I long for that to be true in my life, but there are times when I'm just kind of ornery and wishing I didn't have to. And see, I think that's one of the great ways we look at the king. David is saying, hey, I, I, I long to do your will, and I have joy in doing it and, and longing for that to, to happen. Um, so David's showing his heart attitude there towards God, and and he's saying, I want your instructions written on my heart. I want them to be so vivid and so real that, that they're there all of the time. And he goes on in verse 9, I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out as you, O Lord, well know. So he says, listen, I've, I've told people about your justice or proclaimed your blessings and your goodness. And, 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 and I've seen your deliverance and how your deliverance comes and it's just and fair as it delivers your people. I have not been afraid to speak out. David said, listen, you know, Lord, I've, I've been telling everybody, I've been proclaiming this truth. And he says, I have not kept the good news 
of your justice hidden. In other words, I haven't hidden the truth. I haven't been silent about the good news. I have not been silent about the good news. Um, I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I've told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love. And so David's talking about all these things, and he's saying, listen, Lord, you know, in the assembly, in the, in the group of people when we came together to, to, to worship, I stood and I proclaimed these things to them. I talked about your faithfulness, talked about your saving power, your unfailing love and faithfulness, all of those things were things that I proclaimed. That's one of the implications here. So let's go, let's jump into the section here. And I, I, I want to warn you, we're going to be jumping back and forth. Actually, we'll start in, in uh, Psalm 40 and then go end up in Hebrews. But let's start with verse uh, 6 in, in Psalm 40. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. And so Hebrews 10, starting in verse 9, he quotes and applies Psalm 40 um, to Christ. And, and, and that's what makes this psalm messianic in that way. So it's interesting because if you read Psalm 10, or, or Hebrews 10, it's like a commentary almost on Psalm 40, this one section of Psalm 40. So let's, let's go ahead and do that. We'll go to Hebrews 10, 4. And I love where he starts here. He says, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Isn't that incredible? Um, It's it's amazing to me because on one level, David is saying, hey, you know, you don't want sacrifices. And um, he says, for it's not possible the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the quote from Psalm 40 comes from the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And this is what it says, starting in verse 5. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and here's the quote, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other sin offerings. Now, Look at this as kind of like a bookends. On the one level, he's saying, you don't want sin offerings. and You don't enjoy all these offerings being offered to you. But the middle is, you, made it, you provided me with a body, which I am to offer. Okay, so you've got on the one hand saying, this was never the plan for all time. The sacrifices weren't something that were going to be carried on forever. They were looking forward to the time of Christ. Christ came He had a body, and that body was going to be sacrificed. And that would be the last sacrifice for sins that would ever be needed. And so on one level, that's what David, David, or what the writer to Hebrews is doing here. He's taking those two statements and putting the statement about Christ in the middle of it. And um, he goes on to say, you weren't pleased with those things. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God. So in this case, these words now belong to Christ because the writer of Hebrews is putting them in his mouth. And he said, you, you provided me with the body, and then you, I have come. And it's for one purpose, to do your will, O God, just like it's written in the Scriptures. Now, what was God's will for the perfect Lamb? Isaiah 53, 7. We'll just jump there very quickly and go back to Hebrews. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
And as the sheep before his shears are silent, so he did not open his mouth. What was God's will in all of this? That Christ would come and be born, that he would live a perfect life, and that he would die. And that's exactly what is forecast or foretold, prophesied in Isaiah 53. Now, the explanation of these verses that he pulled out of Psalm 40 comes starting in verse 8. In verse 8 of Hebrews, first Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them. But look at the parenthesis, though they are required by the law of Moses. This isn't something God wanted long term. The sacrificial system wasn't supposed to go on and on and on forever. It had a purpose. It was to help the people of Israel see the cost of sin. I think that was one of the big ones. There was a cost involved, and it meant that blood needed to be offered. And so this was just temporary until the Son of God would come. Um, so first Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices, nor were you pleased with them. They were required. And then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant. That's the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, all those things in that covenant with Israel. He cancels that first covenant in order to put the second covenant into effect, and that's Christ and the gospel and all of the things that come with Christ himself. So what was God's will? Uh, it, what was God's will if we are not supposed to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament require? Well, this is what it says. God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all time. See, the sacrifices had to be done over and over and over. Christ came, died once. That's all that was needed. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. Kind of put them aside and... And, and they were kind, kind of paid for. I'm, I'm saying this badly, but the reality was it was always looking forward to Christ coming and Christ being the perfect sacrifice where sins would be taken care of once for all and they would be gone. And that's what he continues to say here in just a minute. Um, so in contrast to the Old Testament priests who offered these things all over and over and over, verse 12 says, our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. And then he sat down. Why did he sit down? The work was done. Priests never sat down. The work was never done. There was always one more sacrifice, one more offering. Christ came, offered himself once, ascended into heaven and sat because the work was completed. Jesus offered himself the perfect lamb of God. We see that in verse 14. This is probably one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. For by one offering, he, Jesus, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. All right? Let's go to that next slide real quick here. So this is what's going on here. Jesus forever made perfect those that he justified. They come, they put their faith and trust in him, and they are made holy once for all. That's taken care of. That's positional. That's positional. That's where we are justified. And we are in Christ, and there's no sin 
When God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ and he sees us holy, pure, and perfect. The second part, Jesus justifies, makes, us, makes perfect those who are being made holy, those he sanctified. Now, this is the daily process. Justification is that place where we stand in Christ, and then the sanctification is that place where we continue to grow as we walk more and more, seeking to become more like Jesus. So what, what, an, amazing, what an amazing Savior he paid for our sins, and, and we are justified, and we are positionally perfect in Him. And, and He then says, now walk with me, and we'll work on the sanctification thing. Now, there is absolutely no way that we're going to be able to go through the rest of the psalm, so I challenge you to go home and read that. Um, I do want to go to the takeaway really quickly, because I think there's some things here that we can take home from the whole psalm. In the second part of the psalm, verses 11 to 17, it breaks down into uh, 11, 13. Well, here I am again, Lord, I'm a mess. And then verses 12 to, 14, to 15, there's a whole, another section, um, and he's saying, hey, I'm being threatened. Lord, you know, please destroy my enemies. And then finally, verse 16 and 17, there's this prayer for the righteous. Lord, work and continue to do your thing. And then a final pity, prayer for himself Verse 17, as for me, since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper, my savior. Oh my God, do not delay. David got into more trouble in that section, and and that's a description of all that. And so he ends appropriately with, Lord, I can't do this without you. Psalm 40, I think, gives us these things to remember. To think about, to think of God to think of how God saved us or rescued us or did something to keep us going in the past, we need to think about those things and remember them when there's something new that comes along and hits us. Or there's a new crisis, a new threat, a new problem. Remember what he's already done. And and it's interesting, I, I was thinking that through as I was preparing this, and I thought, oh yeah, I remember that time. We didn't have any money to pay the car that was in the shop. And I went out and had this long talk with God, telling him how, you know, terrible he'd been doing things, and uh, just kind of letting him know what I felt about all that. And I got back to the house, and guess what? There was a check waiting that covered the whole amount. You know, that's why you look back on those things. Okay, I remember that time. Yeah, it's tough now, but I remember then. Another one. Um, Psalm 40 reminds us to thank God for his past help and trust him for the future, no matter how hopeless it seems and again, I was thinking through my own life. Okay, when's one of those times? And I remember, oh, it's a long, long time ago. I, there was a situation where I was, I mean, I was depressed. I was down. I was in such bad shape spiritually, emotionally, that I wanted to just quit ministry forever. That's it. I was done. And I think I probably said that to God. And I wanted to walk away from it all. And then I got a phone call. from a friend who was also in ministry at the time. And he listened, and he agreed that the things we were going through were really hard. They were difficult, hard to handle. But then he prayed, and he encouraged me to keep on going. So he looked... And thank God for what he's done in the past as a reminder that 
there's nothing that's hopeless and he will be at work. The third thing I think we learned from Psalm 40 is that God desires our hearts and our minds, not simply for us to go through the motions or to keep certain rules. In our walk with him, he wants our devotion and he wants our love and our trust. And those are the things that he wants to see. So where do we start? Where do we start if we want to do those things? I think David's prayer in Psalm 139 is a great place. Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I find it comforting that David had anxious thoughts. You know, we read of him and we think of him as this amazing, huge, great warrior who won every battle he ever fought. And, and we think of him in these bigger-than-life terms. And David said, hey, search me. Know my heart. Look at my thoughts. They're so anxious. And then he says, Lord, if there's anything offensive, anything at all, show me. Show me anything that I need to change or anything that I need to do. So no matter what's going on in our lives, this is a great starting point many times as we, as we pray and get together with God. Say, okay, God, I'm, just, I'm looking forward to spending this time with you, but is there anything? And search me, show me what it is you want me to know. Now, what is it that God wants? There's a lot of places we could go, but my favorite is Micah 6.8. What is it that he expects? He has showed you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires. What is it that's good and what is it that the Lord requires? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He showed us what is good. He showed us what, what he requires. Now let's go ahead and go to the next slide real quickly. The next slide. There we go. Thanks. Um, so what is it that we're supposed to do? Act justly. What does that mean? Well, we need to do what is right. It's the whole idea of being fair and just with others. We demand that of ourselves. We want them to treat us that way. But this is saying, you need to act this way towards everyone else. You need to look at them and say, what is fair as I treat them? What is good as I treat them? Act justly. Love mercy. The whole idea of showing kindness and goodness and being merciful to those that hurt, that hurt you, those that offend you. Again, we're not asked to do these things in a perfect setting where someone's doing the same things back. We're asked to do this no matter what's going on, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the neighbor next door says and does. I'm supposed to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly in my efforts to reach Him. And then walk humbly with your God. This is kind of the idea of carefully, thoughtfully, in total dependence on God. That's walking humbly with our God. So may we learn to walk more and more in the light of His Word and trust His Spirit to guide us. And I'm going to ask us to read this verse together as we close this morning. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the power of your word. Lord, may we learn from these passages and from these verses the things that you want us to be able to be working on. Lord, help us to become a people who do um, act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. And may, it, may you do that in us and through us in such a way 
that others will see and take notice. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you bring it to life in us. We ask that you'd help us to live these truths out this week. In your name we pray. Amen.